Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from what some used to call the mistake on the lake. It is not anymore. We're in Cleveland, Ohio at the legendary, and I say that with no quotes needed, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, my next guest is uh, making his second appearance on the show. Always happy to have him back, and especially in, in his home turf. He's the CEO and president of the Cleveland Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's not, you know what it is? It's not the Cleveland Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, it just happens to be in Cleveland. You're right. This is a and that, national... Wait, I, I got to introduce you first. It's Greg Harris. Now you can say hi. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, Peter. It is, uh, you know, it's a real thrill that Cleveland has this place, but it really belongs to the world. Um, this is the one Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This is the place when you hear about people being inducted, um, when you um, when you see the ceremony on uh, being broadcast, it's all Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We honor it right here. This is a history of the music that changed all of our lives and continues to do so. And it's surprising to me every time I come back and every time I read about it as to who's actually in this place. Uh, because it's not just Chuck Berry. No. Chuck Berry was our first inductee. Yes. Uh, Aretha Franklin was the first female inductee. And from then, it stretches all the way up to today's class. Uh, this year, we're inducting The Cure. We're inducting Radiohead. Uh, we're inducting Roxy Music and Janet Jackson and all these great artists. But, you know, it's it's because rock and roll is a big tent. It's blues, gospel, country, R&B is the roots. Uh, we we run through garage rock and surf rock and psychedelic and heavy metal. and Heavy metal's music. here too, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin were the forefathers, and it carries on with Metallica and bands like that. So you have, a, you have a relatively generous definition of rock and roll. We do. Uh, we, we welcome all, and it's a, je- a definition that's more about attitude and, um, and your impact and influence. Uh, that's really rock and roll. You push the envelope. You challenge authority. Um, if you think about the greatest emotions of rock and roll, if you had to name them, there, there's the great heartbreak songs. There's love songs. There's songs about freedom. There's songs about rage. Uh, that's rock and roll. And they're funny songs. There's humorous songs, too. Absolutely. I just want to know, is Randy Newman in? Uh, Randy Newman is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. and uh, Does he play the song, The Cuyahoga River? Uh, yes, that's his song. He wrote it. <laughs> it's the 50th anniversary of that. No. Uh, oh, yeah. 
Okay, thank you so much, Greg, for making me feel so old. Yeah. <laughs> Unreal. Well, you know, it's a, it's a great story because it's the it's Cleveland, and we were noted for that, but really it launched the modern environmental movement in, in America, and um, that songs have an impact. Songs echo and, and reverberate, and they cause action. Now, you mentioned some of the, the new inductees. It brings up a point about, let's say, the, the Baseball Hall of Fame. You're only eligible to be in the Baseball Hall of Fame for a certain number of years, you got to be voted in by the baseball writers, mm -hmm. right? And if you don't make it in a certain number of times, you just don't get in, right? Uh, Same similar situation here? It, uh, here, it's, it's a little bit different. Here, you had to have made a record 25 years ago to be eligible. So you had to make something, and then uh, you're judged by um, impact and influence, not by record sales or did you win 300 games or did you hit 500 home runs. Uh, there isn't a lot of that really um, subjective. So if you hit one home run, you could be in. You could be in. and then if So you have in, some one-hit wonders here. Uh, you know what? Look at it this way. Um, more of the one-hit wonders usually are not recognized. It's impact and influence over a career, but it's one of the reasons why a band like the Velvet Underground uh, was inducted um, before other uh, bands that had more popular appeal because the story is that all the, the 100,000 people that bought Velvet Underground records went on to form bands. Um, that was their impact. Yes. Right. And you mentioned Radiohead. You're, I'm sure you're making a lot of people happy who are the real purest music guys. Um, yeah. You know, there's always this, this great tension with, um, with music debates on, uh, on the pure ones or the, the ones with popular acclaim. And uh, frequently over time, those ones that were the pure ones and sort of the, um, the groundbreaking bands like The Cure, globally, they're massive. They're selling out soccer stadiums around the world. Um, and uh, they started off as a club band that was, uh, you know, cutting their own path and had a unique sound, and they influenced so many people. Now, I mentioned the Baseball uh, Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. I've been there many times. We've done a number of shows on CBS about the woman who owns Cooperstown, more or less. Uh -huh. you, you know who I'm talking about. That's where you came from. That's true. I was uh, really fortunate to spend 14 great years in that wonderful village. This is a, a double plug for Cooperstown and Cleveland. You know what? I have one, pro I have one problem about Cooperstown. Every time you're gonna laugh because you know what you're gonna know it when I say it. Every time I go to Cooperstown, I come back with like eight baseball bats. Perfect. Every store sells baseball bats, and and, they, and they'll personalize them for you. Oh yeah. And then the, the, there's a one sign on the one store there that I I felt I took a picture of it. I laughed so much. It says we have all the baseball cards your mother threw away. And you know what? That was very personal to me because that's exactly what happened yeah. to me. Well, I hope you went inside and looked at the cards. I had and Mickey Mantles and Roger Maris's and Orlando Cepeda's and Brooks Robinson, and she went in my closet one day and said, he doesn't need this. And it, it was a while before we talked again. Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, well, you know, rock and roll and baseball are both magical. You know, their they're touchstones are really important to all of us uh, growing up in this culture. Um, we look to these games for not just diversion, but for energy, for inspiration. Uh, there's stories. Uh, there's chances to share this this common link. Whether you're, you know, chatting with a, a you know, your your ride from the airport, or you're sitting at a state dinner, uh, you can be talking about baseball or rock and roll, and it just connects all of us. Well, it, it allows for common ground. Yeah. In both the Baseball Hall of Fame and here, you have an opportunity for numerous emotional connections. Because, because, I mean, that's what it evokes, right? Mm -hmm. What exhibits that you have here that are the standing exhibits, right, yeah. are the most emotionally connected? So that's a, a fantastic question. You know, since we, we last spoke, we've transformed significant parts of this museum. Uh, we added a place to really uh, connect with the, the Hall of Famers themselves. We built a Hall of Fame, and we built an immersive theater. In this immersive theater, we went out to create emotion in that theater. It uses clips from our inductions, but we hired the great Jonathan Demme, great filmmaker. Uh, great director. He, he went in through our vaults. He picked out the moments that had the strongest impact. And to give you an example, his whole show is tailored to end with Prince playing Well My Guitar Gently Weeps oh. at one of the greatest sort of rock and roll uh, guitar solos ever. But it connects you because you've got the Beatles reverberating. You've got Prince on stage, Tom Petty standing next to him, and you're sitting in the audience in the front row. Um, really powerful moments that remind us just where we were when we heard that song the first time and uh, how it connects us all. It's funny because when I was flying in here, I picked up a story, you may not have seen it, uh, about a library in Cleveland that got something returned to them 50 years later. The Life magazine. I didn't see that. Okay. Uh -huh. Some people in the studio are nodding their heads. A guy took out a magazine with the, with the Beatles on the cover, right, and never returned it. 
like 50 years, it was like 1965 or 66, never returned the it. The guilt must have been killing him. Well, guess what? It, retur- it got returned back to the library this week with a note and $100 from the guy saying, I, I couldn't live with myself anymore. Here's- <laughs> Here it's back. And, and-, and it was in good condition. Yes. Yeah. Love it. Well, you know, you asked about experiences in the museum. Uh, another thing we've been doing, we now, we did 80 days of live music on our plaza. So if listeners come in the summer, odds are there's going to be a band playing at the museum. And then there's something we're opening up this summer. It's called The Garage. It's our entire second floor. And so we have terrific exhibits. You can see the artifacts that really made the music. You can actually see, you know, the guitar that John Lennon played on the, the Ed Sullivan show on their debut. You can see the piano that they wrote, well, my, that they wrote I Want to Hold Your Hand and Eleanor Rigby on and, and feel the energy. But there's a floor at the museum where you can play instruments. You're going to strap on a Les Paul or a Fender, and you're going to plug in and crank the guitar. You're going to play keyboards and drums, and uh, then you're all going to jam together in a studio. And we're building that now to create that that connection, that true feeling. Uh, of Let me that, guess, and you'll be doing recordings, won't you? Uh, you'll be able to record I there. I knew it. And uh, you can jam with other visitors. You can jam with your family. If there's a traveling band touring the museum, they can pop in the studio. But you're forgetting one thing. You're going to probably have to sign the waiver so that if the music's released, you at least get the publishing. <laughs> <laughs> Greg, the thing that I think is fascinating to me that most people don't think about when they come to the museum here or to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is they're looking for the stars. But you also have a lot of great studio musicians, session guys, yeah. who are actually here at the museum. I keep calling it a museum because it's true, it is. Yeah, we, we do. And, you know, it's um, it's fitting to talk about that. We lost one of the greats. Yes, uh, j- just recently. Just recently, Hal Blaine. Who uh, played, by the way, with Elvis. He played with uh, Sinatra. I mean, at, the right? Beach Boys. The drummer. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel. And, and People don't know about him is that when the Beach Boys went in the studio, they didn't play the drums. Dennis Wilson didn't play the drums. He played the drums. He played the drums. Glenn Campbell played the guitar, and Carol Kay played the bass. Wow. Uh, the Wrecking Crew, uh, a great documentary of folks have seen it. And uh, really, they were the L.A. session musicians, and Hal Blaine uh, was the king of the drummers. And we lost him uh, recently, but he's all over this museum. Um, it is, isn't just those that are in front of the spotlights. We celebrate all those that were part of this music. And as he liked to say, while well, I was making $35 an hour, the Beach Boys were making 35000 a night. Uh, yes, there's uh, there's something about that. I guess the, the advantage Maybe, although that's a big multiplier. He was sleeping at home every night, um, although at times he did so many sessions he slept in the studio. A lot of people did. A lot of people did. There was a great documentary, which I recommend everybody to see. I think it was, what, 20 Feet from Stardom? Yeah. Um, and it featured all the backup singers. Yeah. Right? It, it really did. It featured the backup singers and, and the stories behind some of them where they are the backup singers, but, you know, um, Darlene Love. Uh Darlene's love is, is is a voice that's filling in on the Crystal songs, and she's not getting credit for it. But she's the booming big voice, um, and uh, and she finally got recognition uh, one through that film, but also through us. We we inducted her. We recognize these um, these side men. We call them. Right. I guess we may want to think about that if they're uh, female background singers, but we call them side men and, and others that contribute to rock and roll, and we recognize them uh, for their contributions. One it's, of the ones in that in that movie who I knew pretty well, who didn't get a lot of recognition, was Mary Clayton. Oh, I'm glad you know her. She's, I do know her because listen, listen to the Rolling Stones. You'll hear her. Uh, yeah, she's she's that voice in the the story. Rape, murder, it's just it, a shot away. In sympathy for the devil. Yeah. It, there's photos of that session. Um, they went to her house and got her at about midnight and brought her to the studio. So this great gospel singer, and she showed up, I believe, in a bathrobe, <laughs> and knocked out her parts of the song. And then the car took her back at 4:30 in the morning. And uh, she's terrific. Uh, she's out on the East Coast. Um, uh, living uh, outside New York City and uh, really just a gem of a person. Is she still performing? Uh, she's performing um, and singing some. Um, and uh, we had her come back. We did a Rolling Stones event where we honored the Stones. We brought back a bunch of people that performed with them. Has and Mr. Jagger been here? Uh, they've been through the museum. Uh, we we invite all inductees to come here. Um, you know, we should talk about just in the last few weeks, the guys from Rush, Getty Lee and Alec Lifson. Uh, they came by. We did a big Rush celebration day. Fans flew in from... Uh, Fairbanks, Alaska, and Houston, and Dallas just to be here. Metallica came by a couple days ago and spent the night at the museum. They were playing in town uh, to see this place. Um, You know, it's a place that uh, artists are connecting to even more, and I think that all of these artists think about their legacy at some point, and we're that spot that preserves it. How do you get nominated? Um, There's a nominating committee that meets once once a year. It's about 24 people. You must be present. There's no phone-ins. And on that committee, there are other musicians, people like Dave Grohl's on the committee, 
uh, Paul Schaefer's on the committee, Steve Van Zant. Um, everybody in the on the committee. You now, realize what you have here. You should do an album called the committee. <laughs> they should just get in there in the session. They should do it in the studio right now. It, it's a pretty great group, and there's also writers and historians and others on the committee. Everybody nominates two. There's uh, a series of voting, and in the end, there's roughly 15 names that are on a ballot that are approved. That ballot then goes out to a voting body of about a thousand people of which the largest largest single voting block are all the other inductees. So Smokey Robinson votes, Bono votes, um, you know, they all, Tina Turner votes. And they vote, and then the top five vote-getters are elected to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Amazing. Now, is there a limit to how many times you can be nominated and then you just can't get in? No. Um, I'm glad you brought us back to that. Unlike baseball, there is no limit. Uh, you can continue to be nominated uh, year after year, but the kicker is it resets every year. So just because you're on the ballot one year doesn't guarantee you'll be on the ballot the next year. Because somebody still has to nominate you. Yes. So is there a way to tell me who's been nominated more than anybody else who hasn't gotten in? Um, among some of the active bands, the uh, the interesting thing is in recent years, bands that had never been nominated are finally getting nominated. So the minute the Moody Blues were nominated, after 29 years of eligibility, they went in immediately. Hall & Oates, eligible for years, went in immediately. Um, that happened with Stevie Ray Vaughan as well. It also happened with, uh, with Rush. It happened with Yes. Uh, as soon as they get nominated, they're going in. Some that have been hanging out there, um, Sheik uh, at one point had been Sheik, nominated. Sheik, oh my God. Um, about a dozen times. And then what happened was um, Nile Rodgers um, was nominated for his work with Sheik, but also his independent work with David Bowie, Stevie Ray, Duran Duran, um, Daft Punk. He was nominated and he was elected as an individual. Who's the one person or group who seems to get nominated all the time and just can't get in? Yeah, you know, that's, <clears throat> I was hoping you'd move on to another subject, but <laughs> I'll look at the recent voting. Yeah. And um, it does seem like artists eventually get over the top if they've garnered a significant number of, of votes in being nominated. So most that have been nominated eventually get elected. Right now, I think a band that has been nominated a few times that hasn't gone over the top yet uh, are the great, you know, the Bad Boys of Boston, the Jay Giles Band. Um, amazing blues band. And, and Peter Wolf their lead singer just, I think, recently passed away. Um, the, um, the guitarist you're thinking yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, they, they've been one that has been nominated a few times and just have not garnered the votes. And we're sort of going into eras. We're moving into an era where uh, Judas Priest was nominated uh, a couple times. Uh, it's They're one that's trending toward toward moving toward getting the votes. And um, it, it'll be interesting. Every year it starts afresh. There's 15 that are on the ballot. And uh, let's see what happens. We're going to announce the new ballot in October. The voting will happen uh, with... The committee the will committee. meet. And fans can vote. So if fans go to rockhall.com in sept starting in October. They can vote on the class. We announce the new inductees in December, and then we do the induction ceremony in spring. Uh, this year it's March 29th. It's at Barclays Arena in New York. Uh, it is sold out, um, and uh, we're really excited for this year's class. So now let me ask the devil's advocate question. Uh, a lot of times some of these individuals or groups get in the news in the wrong way, right? What do you deal with when you have a Michael Jackson situation? Yeah. Because you know, he was inducted. He was inducted. Um, if you look at the um, list of inductees in, in a number of these halls of fame. And by the way, let's look at Babe Ruth or a lot of those guys who today probably wouldn't get in. Uh, well, it depends. Based on behavior. Based on behavior. That's correct. Um, I think that if you're thinking of rock and roll, we're looking at their artistic achievements. We're looking at what they've created, what they've done. And, um, and when uh, you mentioned Michael Jackson... When he was uh, elected uh, as a member of the Jackson 5 and as a solo artist, they were looking at all of his artistic achievements and what he's done. Um, those are those songs and that those contributions will exist forever. Um, because here you have a situation where radio stations are saying they're not going to play his music anymore. He's been taken down off playlists. Yeah. Um, and then there's the another side of the, of the house that's sort of um, contesting those things as well. And... For us, we document, we preserve, we tell the stories, and um, we uh, have, he's a member of our Hall of Fame and um, for his musical achievements. And in all of these um, areas, uh, including sport, just because somebody can, you know, throw a, a football a certain distance or run a certain way uh, doesn't necessarily mean they're of, of the finest character. I gotcha. 
I'm with you. The building itself, the design of the building itself, allows for so many different ways for you to, to, to display things, to exhibit things, to, to involve people in a physical way. Are you doing overnights here now? <laughs> sleepovers? We are not doing sleepovers. A lot so of museums do. They are popular in museums. Uh, frequently, science museums and a lot of museums that are more, more for uh, younger kids. Um, we... Um, because I was reasons, thinking about the concept of like you know the famous Ben Stiller movie, not at the museum. You could do not at, not at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It, it would be great fun. We frequently are used like tonight. We're going to have close to a thousand people in the museum having a a full on party. I'm guessing there'll be a band on stage. You're just guessing. Uh, I'm just guessing. Most yeah, nights right. of most nights of the year, uh, we do those kind of events. And um, but uh, we love this. It's a community place. Um, we have visitors from all over the world. We also are free to anybody in Cleveland. Uh, we opened up our museum starting last year, so that it's free admission for any Cleveland resident. And our goal is to accommodate as many as possible because this is a real um, community of people that love the same things. Um, and talking about visitors, you know, a couple of years ago we were pulling, up, we were drawing about four hundred thousand visitors a year. And today, today we're approaching six hundred thousand. Wow! Um, and it's part and of. And they all stop at the gift store. You know, like any good museum, you must exit <laughs> through the gift store. It's perfect. But, uh, you know. But you're not selling any baseball bats here. There, there's, uh, there's no bats, but we've got some terrific. I heard you talking about uh, pets. Amazing dog leashes that are rock and roll for your pets. Uh, <laughs> great merchandise. And the other thing we've done recently is we have a brand new uh, restaurant here. And we have celebrity chef partners in town. Um, Rocco. Rocco. He's coming on the show later. Oh, he is the greatest. He uh, he lives and breathes it. And, um, you know, so when people come here, there's going to be live music, great thing to enjoy, and then great exhibits. Greg Harris, CEO and president of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Thanks so much for having us. I come back to Cleveland at least once a year because I actually believe it's one of America's best underrated cities. Uh, and so many people for so many years flew over it. Uh, and they've gotten their act together. In fact, even the infrastructure's together. Mass transit from Hopkins Airport to downtown works. It actually works. Um in so, many, in so many ways better than other cities. But it's more than just the mass transit, of course, what you're going to find when you get here. And my next guest is certainly going to be helpful with that because he's essentially my unofficial Cleveland City historian and Professor John Grabowski. How are you, sir? I'm fine, Peter. Welcome back. And always happy to see you again. We're broadcasting from the Alan Freed Studio on the fifth floor of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And for those people who don't know who Alan Freed is, and by the way, I knew him. I knew his son, Lance. Why don't you uh, enlighten us? Well, Al Alan Freed is, is the Moondogger, and his Moondog Coronation Ball in 1952 really took the name rock and roll and made it national for all the right reasons and all the wrong reasons because the, uh, the con concert actually lasted one number, but we can go into that later. <laughs> but Freed started playing R&B on his radio show thanks to a guy named Leo Mintz. And Leo Mintz ran a record shop on Prospect Avenue in Cleveland, just, just to the south of us here. And Mintz uh, started the shop in 38. He was innovative. They, they had listening booths there. And he was showing, he was selling R&B and he was watching white kids getting into R&B. And he knew Freed and he said, you know, they want to play this stuff. Start playing it. So he was actually on the air with Freed and he'd be handing platters to Freed. And literally. Literally. And, and Freed would be playing this and Freed got this reputation. He was wild on the air. He was known as the moondogger. He'd slam on telephone books and howl. And, uh, and he picked up a big audience of white kids and African-American kids in a city that was changing demographically. And he was one of the innovators of rock and roll. Yeah, he was. You know, he, he, he really made it. And that, you know, and we're sitting here in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, thanks to Alan Freed, because when the project to build a Hall of Fame came up, Clevelanders just came out by the bucket load and voted and petitioned and pushed to get the Rock Hall here. And that's why we're here. But the true full story of Alan Freed is... How his career ended, too. Yeah, his, his, well, his career. He went to New York, and then he got caught up in one of those scandals. The, the Payola scandal. The Payola scandal. So, you know, you, you've got Charles Van Doren and the, the Payola scandal. scandal meaning the, that, yeah. that he was accused of, of, of getting money to, to repeatedly play certain songs records, yeah. to get them on the list. Yeah, it's, it's kind of pay-for-play, really, yeah. if you will. Well, yeah. not kind of. It was. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was the original pay-for-play. Yeah. yeah. And he died, he died early, which is a real shame. Yeah. You know, and his, and but there's still, there's still kinescopes of him, and there's still video of him. Yeah. Uh, he, was, he was on TV for a while. Yeah. And it was, it was just breaking, you know, breaking this whole thing open at that time. When he actually what, pre he, he preceded, in a sense, Dick Clark. 
Yeah, yeah. He, you know, orally and and visually with Dick Clark. You yeah. know, Dick Dick Clark comes off, I think, differently than Freed did. You know, Dick Clark was pretty clean shoes, if you will, about the whole thing. Right. Yeah. Now this is a big deal for you, this Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh yeah, yeah. This is this is part of Cleveland's renaissance back, and you know, Cleveland had gone through a real rough spot in the '70s and the '80s, and in the '80s we began to re envision the city, and there was a lot of emphasis put on what we call North Coast Harbor, the the lakefront, and doing something with the harbor. And so when when the whole bidding came up for the Rock Hall, we pushed for that, and the original location was going to be in, in the flats, or close to where is Tower City Center, but it got moved up. The IMP building got moved up here on the lakefront, what we call North Coast Harbor. Well, getting IMP on board was no small feat. No, no, not at all, and it's a landmark building. So, you know, you're looking at a lakefront, which is basically fill that's been added to, to the edge of Cleveland over the years, and you, you've got our sports stadium, the Brown Stadium is here, you've got the uh, Science Museum, you've got this across the street from us is the Coast Guard, and then there's an ore ship anchored uh, off that off ore the ship's coast been here, here for a long time. Yeah, that's that that's the the Mather, and that that's basically uh, you know it's it's a symbol of what our city was. For, for those many people years. who remember the Gordon Lightfoot song, go on the ore ship and, and have a little memory of the Edmund Fitzgerald, yep. right? Or you can drink a bottle of Edmund Fitzgerald now. It's brewed. Come on, lo- yeah, it's it's one of our local beers from Great Lakes Brewing. I'm, I'm not I'm not shilling for Great Lakes Brewing, but <laughs> they they do the Edmund Fitzgerald. They do an Elliott Ness beer. They do a Burning River beer. Where's Alan Freed buried? Alan Freed is in Lakeview Cemetery now, which is probably the most famous cemetery in Cleveland. It's where John D. Rockefeller is buried. It's where many of the leaders of the city were buried. It's where Elliot Ness is buried. His ashes are actually in a lake at Lakeview. And Alan Freed is there. And he has the most remarkable tombstone. It is is an incredible, it's a replica in granite of a jukebox. <laughs> and, and it's just it's just awesome. And, and people come there. And, they come and there and they, leave quarters. Yeah, they, they, they put stones on top of it. You know, they, 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 they leave the markers on that, that they visited Freed's grave. And then they go across and there's a marker for Elliot Ness on the other side of the road. But much more simple. Much more simple. You know, and Elliot's ashes were scattered in that lake, you know. So uh, so it's 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 a great place if you come to Cleveland. You know, Wait, you know, are you telling me that Elliot sleeps with the fishes? Yeah, yeah, he's he's with the fishes. He's 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 in the pond with, you know, <laughs> you want if you want to go further with gangsters and the whole thing we could, couldn't we? Let's go. Yeah. Well, Cleveland for a long time, let's face it, was a little bit of a mob town. Yeah, yeah, it was. You know, the Purple Gang was up in Detroit and it spilled over here. Listen, we had the Mayfield when you Road mob. Go back to the movie with uh, Robert De Niro, Casino. Mm-hmm. Remember the guy who walked into the cage with the briefcase? Mm-hmm. He was the guy from Cleveland. The guy from Cleveland. Was the guy from Cleveland. Right. Now, have you been to the Mob Museum in Las Vegas? I have. Okay. There's a lot of Cleveland in the Mob Museum, and Cleveland has a lot yes. to do with the start of Vegas. I remember when I was reporting on the mob in Las Vegas for Newsweek, and it was weird because between the mob that was in Cleveland and the Teamsters, mm-hmm. they owned all those those, those hotels yeah. and casinos. Just just say the name Jackie Presser in Cleveland. Oh, yeah. And, and, or, 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 or uh, oh, God, there's another one, too. That I, I forget his name, but he was even worse. Uh, and, and they guys, every day, someone would come in with a briefcase. Mm-hmm. And nobody's supposed to know he was there. Right. He just loaded up the money. Mm-hmm. Yep. Amazing. Yep. Yeah, just went through. It's uh, it's, it's an incredible story of this city. You know, you know, and again, you know, we're here on the lakefront, and the, lake, the lakefront's what makes this. But, you know, you talk about the renaissance of Cleveland. Let's not forget its role in the rise of America in the 19th century. Right. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it basically one of the great industrial powers. About 19, you know, if you want a, well, a statistic that's somewhat boring, in 1920, Cleveland was the uh, fifth largest city in the United States, and the value of its industrial production was fifth largest. But this is where Rockefeller started Standard Oil. Uh, this is where a lot of railroad systems that got merged into major Vanderbilt systems started. This is where Sherwin Williams still is producing paints for over 150 years. Uh, it's an iron and steel city, and we still have a steel mill that is one of the most efficient in the world. And the trains still run through it. The trains run through it, just just to the south of us here, Peter. You know, the, the Amtrak comes through, and that, that railroad line has been there since the 1850s. You know, when Eisenhower said that America didn't build the interstate highway system, the interstate highway system built America, he was only partially correct. It was the railroads that so, built yep, America. Yep, that was exactly it. When, when Cleveland got rail connections, it, it just boomed. And, you know, we were in the right spot in the 19th century. There was oil in Pennsylvania. There's iron ore in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. There's coal in the Mahoning Valley, and and then that's why we're an immigrant city. People came here to work, and now there's rock and roll. There's rock and roll. Yeah, John Grabowski, as always, lo- lovely to see you again. Good to see you again. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles, 
and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. Welcoming back to the show, someone who was with us the last time we were in Cleveland. He's the chief of the fire department here in Cleveland, Angela Cavillo. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for having me. You know, every time we talk and every time I talk to the, to any fire department, you know, we, we've got the same issues that we've got to talk about. Um, and, and, and usually it doesn't happen in your community, but it happens elsewhere, which opens the door to thinking about what you need to do here. You know, we had the Grenville Tower fire in London, and, you know, those people were just, it was terrible. It was, it was, they had no chance. And they talked about the cladding on the building. And then what you find out later, it wasn't really the cladding. They had no sprinklers in the building. They had no sprinklers in the private rooms, in the public rooms. Any above, anybody above the sixth floor had no chance at all or the, or the or the or the buildings that we train on I'm, I'm a volunteer fireman we train on this too you know, the famous MGM grand fire back in 1981 in Las Vegas similar situation no sprinklers nobody had a chance so the codes are constantly being revised but a lot of times in some communities maybe not Cleveland but in some communities people get grandfathered in and all of a sudden your challenge as a fire chief is you know you can go in there and tell them what they should do but maybe they don't always do it Right. Uh, so we, we're very fortunate. We've got a robust uh, fire prevention bureau with a fire marshal and a team of inspectors that go out constantly and, and proactive to make sure that everyone's un, in compliance as far as the code. And our, our suppression companies go out there quite often, too, especially in the high-rise high districts as far as just drilling and being proactive as far as setting up and pre-planning uh, with engine companies and truck companies. And you know, and, Chief, when you talk about pre-planning, what most people don't realize is that at most major fire departments in the country, yours included, you got the blueprints. I mean, you know the schematics of those buildings so that you're not flying blind when you get there. Absolutely. With modern technology now, we've got what, what they call mobile data computers on every apparatus. And currently, right now, we're working to get those blueprints on the mobile data computers so that when the incident commander pulls up on scene, he's going to know he's got a 25, 30-story sprinkler building, fire alarm system on the lobby location, and all that information will be right there. And you're not just looking for the standpipe. You know exactly where to look for everything else. Absolutely. And once again, getting those companies out on a daily basis to make sure that they know where that standpipe connection is, the fire department connection, and where they're going to stage and set up for operations. Every year, you and I both see the same, the same tragic stories in the, in the news about a fire that happens and half the exits are blocked, or these are basically nightclubs or restaurants. I mean, how do we fix that? Because that is an accident waiting to happen. Well, once again, we rely on our Fire Prevention Bureau with our life safety officers. And, and in fact, we've got St. Patty's Day coming up uh, this Sunday. So the inspectors are going to be out there making sure that these establishments are uh, not overcrowding and making sure that they have uh, ways of getting out that building uh, in two exits at least. And so we're very vigilant about that, and we're always watching that. And once again, our fire inspectors are going out daily to make sure that everyone is in compliance as far as the code and those exits are, are, are functioning properly. And look, this is a city on the lake. You have a wind issue. Oh, we sure do. It's, uh, for me as a fire chief, when I wake up in the morning, I'm watching the news, I'm looking at the wind. Why? Because anything greater than 20, 30, 40 miles an hour, if you have a working structure fire, that's like a blowtorch. So you've got to be very careful to make sure that you attack the fire properly and that the ventilation is done simultaneously so nobody gets hurt or killed. You know, in our fire department back on Long Island, actually on Fire Island, we have to approach it differently because we have limited resources. So our firefighting is defensive. It's not offensive. You know, we surround and drown and try to save everything around something as opposed to trying, unless a life is at stake, we don't really, we, we don't have the time and we don't have the effort to do it because we have limited resources. By the time we run the hose to where we need to go, we got a problem. You know, Peter, and I enjoy talking with you because I know you've been a firefighter for decades, many, many years. So it, it's, it, it's a joy to my heart to talk with you about this. And yes, it's true. So uh, we got to do the risk analysis. Is it worth the risk? Are there anybody to save? Uh, just a couple of days ago, we had a situation where it was a uh, apartment complex, you know, and uh, companies got on scene. They went in to do an aggressive interior attack, nobody inside the building, and then we had to switch up from an offensive to defensive. But once again, it's all about that risk analysis and the incident commander sizing up the situation and every minute just readjusting if, if need be. One of our recurrent courses, you know about recurrent training, you live for that. We have to do it. Uh, on my island, we actually have to do a recurrent training course on train accidents. We have no trains. We don't even have tracks, but we're required to do it, right? But the one course we always have to do is incident command because we got to know who we're taking orders from and who's actually in control when we get there or 
precious time is lost. Well, absolutely. And so what we do in our department is uh, uh, any near-miss situations or scenarios, we'll actually have my command staff review it, and then we'll bring up our incident commanders and those battalion chiefs and discuss about what happened, what we can do better as far as communications and tactics. We're always working to improve, and we also um, have a... uh, um, uh, training platform that's called Target Solution. So now all the members on the fire department will have uh, access to that training, be it EMT training, paramedic training, uh, fire uh, continuing education. Because as a firefighter, as you well know, that you have to have so many continuing education hours to be that firefighter to keep your certification. Exactly. You know, we're coming up on the 18th anniversary, you know, later this year, of course, of September 11th. And one of the, the lingering problems from that was that nobody was on the same frequency. You know, they couldn't talk to each other in New York. The fire department couldn't talk to the police department. They couldn't talk to all the other city departments. Thankfully, they fixed that now because that was really hurting everybody. You know, and I really pay attention to that, uh, 343 firefighters that died. For me, it's all about communications, and I always talk to my command staff. In fact, just last week, we talked about communications and mutual aid companies. And if a mutual aid company in another surrounding suburb had a situation, how can we get that information to my incident commander to talk to that incident commander as opposed to dispatching? And it's a quick, uh, it's a quick solution. My fire dispatch basically says we can contact that incident commander in that mutual aid company to give him the tech channel and and uh, zone so that he can talk directly radio to radio in regards to what is actually occurring right now, so that we can provide resources. You know, people always ask me why I always go to the firehouse when I come to a city for the first time. It's because you guys have been in everybody's hotel, you've been in everybody's house, you've been in everybody's restaurant. You know where to go. You also know where not to go. And by the way, here's not exactly a news bulletin. You like to eat. We sure do, Peter. We all love to eat. And uh, firemen, we, I mean, it's it's been truly an honor. We, we know just about everything or anything. It's been an honor to eat? <laughs> an honor to eat, an honor to work in a department, and an honor to work with these individuals that they're talented. I mean, you, you name it. You need a carpenter. You need a, a chef an accountant, and they're all within the division of fire. Exactly. But now let's talk about the food. Where do you like to hang out? For me, I, I, I uh, well, I'm, I'm Mexican and Sicilian, so I, I like a variety of food. Uh, uh, there's lachitas on the west side. If uh, For me, I like uh, uh, Arabic food, so there's Aladdin's downtown. Uh, for the Italian food, we've got Murray Hill up over there on Mayfield. Uh, for breakfast, I, I like uh, my local Barb's restaurant or Gabe's over there on West 14th. Uh, they're just look at, uh, look at how so fast many. you're ripping this stuff off. You, you, you are all about the food. <laughs> I love a good uh, uh, corned beef sandwich. We got Slimans right down the street. Uh, we got Superior Deli. Uh, uh, so many different neighborhoods. The Tremont area, uh, Gordon Square, um, and the breweries. The breweries. Um, there's a lot of breweries around here. Uh, Great Lakes Brewery. Uh, you can actually get uh, a nice uh, uh, beer and uh, some food, and then uh, travel over to a baseball game, the Cleveland Indians, during the summertime. It's a beautiful day, beautiful event, good food, good beer. All right. Now, the last time you were on, you couldn't stop talking about grumpies. Tell me about Grumpy's. Well, Grumpy's is over there in West 14th. It's a it's a nice little place I like to go after uh, you know mass, where uh, me and my wife and my family will go and get a nice breakfast. And uh, it's really a, it's it's an amazing little place. Uh, they've got uh, pictures that you can actually buy of artists, local artists, and uh, the food is good, the coffee is good, and I just love the environment. So you go for a post-confession breakfast? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Riding along in my automobile. My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio Joining me now is someone who knows a little bit about this city. He's the executive vice president of the John P. Murphy Foundation, which is an organization that's a private charitable foundation that focuses on, on the local arts and culture here, but he's really a walking historian. Richard Clark, how are you, sir? Good, Peter. Good to be here. I mean, when we think of the development of Cleveland, of which this Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is so much a part of it, what comes to mind for you as, as, as one of the keynote moments? I would say the groundbreaking ceremony for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum Um and I forget the year, but um, thank you, 91. Um, right here where we are today um, was dirt and shovels and Yoko Ono and Ahmed Erdogan and Jan Wenner and Chuck Berry. And, and they all got along. Peter Townsend. And they all yes, got along. Famously, they did get along that day. <laughs> that one day they all got along. Um, there hadn't been a shovel in the ground. Did, Yoko didn't in, sing, did she? No. Okay, I'm just asking. I no, just want, okay. I, 
I did have, uh, don't worry, Kyoto, it's only a hand in the snow, but we won't go there. So, um, Peter, uh, there hadn't been a shovel in the ground in Cleveland in uh, many years. There wasn't much going on downtown. And so the idea that not only was there a groundbreaking, but there was a groundbreaking for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum, of which there is only one in the entire world, and it was taking right taking place right here in downtown Cleveland, was uh, a memorable moment, and I think a, a real energizing moment that also gave great momentum to the other things that would come out of the public-private partnership that um, resulted in new sports arenas and other development downtown. It led the way. It certainly did. It was groundbreaking in many ways. It put Cleveland back on the map. It did. So Cleveland uh, is famous in the early history of rock and roll. Rock and roll music wasn't invented here. But Cleveland played an important part in um, spreading the news. So Alan Freed has his first rock and roll radio station here on WJW. The first rock and roll concert is here at the Cleveland Arena. Uh, Elvis Presley made his first national television appearance from a show here that Bill Randall produced in Cleveland. That part I did not know. Right. I think that's 1957. Maybe so that was before Ed Sullivan, of course. Before he did Ed Sullivan, he was he was on a live syndicated show that broadcast out of Cleveland. Sixties things slowed down. In the seventies, um, I think one of the big things that happened was the rise of powerhouse radio station WMMS and a DJ named Billy Bass is the first DJ in the nation to play David Bowie records on the air. This is about 1972, 1973. David Bowie, the, the station was itself so popular. David Bowie became so popular that he was able to sell out large concert venues here. And he wasn't doing that anywhere else in the United States. So we really set the stage for David Bowie's um conquest of North America. So you were a mini-magnet. We were, and we caught the attention of every record executive in the nation. Because they could break a record here. Exactly, and they did. Many, many acts were were broke here. Also, interestingly, um, in uh, August 1978, Bruce Springsteen plays the Coffee Break concert with WMMS at the uh, Agora Ballroom, and this revitalizes his career, which had languished a bit, after the release By the of way, Born to Run. I'm very well aware of that because as a correspondent for Newsweek back in 1975, I actually did the cover story on Bruce Springsteen that came out the exact same week as the cover story of Bruce Springsteen in Time that had never been done before. And those two simultaneously issued covers, Bruce Springsteen says it today in his own autobiography, basically put a halt to his career for about a year and a half. He didn't even record. It was crazy. Right, and there were problems with um, lawsuits and and management. Um, I mean, when you think about that, most of America in 1975 had never heard of Bruce Springsteen, and here are the two most influential national news magazines in the same week putting him on the cover. Right. And prior to that, Bruce Springsteen would come to Cleveland to play occasionally, and he loved to buy a cheap ticket for the bleacher seats at the uh, old municipal stadium and watch the Cleveland Indians uh, lose. Watch the Indians lose. Yes. I mentioned that because that's what they did. We were were big in losing in those days. That's branding for you. (laughs) We're big in losing. They've turned that around. We had the famous nickel beer night. Um, oh, I, oh and, I remember that. Right. Somebody thought it would be a great idea to get a lot of fans in the stadium and only charge a nickel for beer. Then and you couldn't uh, get them out of the stadium. There was a riot. The game was stopped. And uh, that, too, is uh, history. Right. They never revived that moment. <laughs> <laughs> Nor should they. Nor should they. But when you think about it, it's still happening today. People will come through Cleveland to play here because they know it's a receptive audience. Yeah. Cleveland has always had great fans. Um, and... Bands that came here once and played it couldn't wait to come back and play again. Word spread through the industry, and so Cleveland became a real place on the map in terms of touring and promotion and uh, getting your record sold. Of course, one of the biggest problems Cleveland has had in the last 15 years has been airlift. You know, I remember, you know, when Continental said we're never going to touch Cleveland, and then they cut service. United said they were never going to touch Cleveland, and they cut service. But the airport's now getting more and more service. It is. um, Slowly. There could be more flights, and we hope there will be. There needs to be. There needs to be. It was a hub. It really was a hub. If you were going to the West Coast and you couldn't get a flight anywhere else, I used to come through Cleveland, stop for an hour, and then keep going. It worked. You know what? People now need to stop and stay. That would be nice. We do still have a great Greyhound station, though, if you're inclined to take the bus. Now, that's something I haven't heard from in a long time. Beautiful Art Deco Greyhound station right downtown. All right. That's something you'll only hear on on Travel. be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. 
My next guest has been around the Cleveland Plain Dealer since 1981. 91. It's Really? 91. <laughs> That's still a pretty long time in the newspaper business. It is, to be in one place. His name is Steve Litt. He's the art and architecture critic for the Cleveland Plain Dealer, a newspaper I used to write for every Sunday. Yeah, so I always had, had a great time doing that. You know, when we talk, Steve, about art and architecture in Cleveland, I think you guys get a bum rap because, yeah. you know, when you're flying into Cleveland, at least in the old days, right? Yeah. I mean, you were flying over just a lot of old stuff that wasn't really highlighted well or, or preserved well or, or recognized. But you know that's not, a, not the real story. No, there's been a fantastic historic preservation movement here. We have a fantastic theater district called Playhouse Square, uh, which uh, comprises uh, half a dozen historic uh, vaudeville Houses and movie palaces built in the 1920s. You know about those? Yeah. And they were they, they were saved uh, back in the 70s and 80s, and now it's the largest unified uh, performing arts complex in the country outside of uh, Lincoln Center in New York. Well, listen, where we are right now, 20 years ago, was what? Um, a hole in the shoreline. Yeah. <laughs> North Coast uh, Harbor. The only thing that was here empty. that I remember was the ship, the ore carrier. That was it. That was it. Yeah. Well, it was a big deal to create the harbor, right? Yes. Cleveland wanted to imitate Baltimore's inner harbor. And by the way, so the, the ore carrier, it's, it's called the Stephen... Uh, uh, William G. Mather. William G. Mather. I'm telling you, it's, right it was, over there. it's, it's fat. It literally is walking distance from where we are right now. Right. I loved it. Yeah. It's great, but you need more. Yeah, you need more. <laughs> on, on a lakefront. And, you know, Cleveland is uh, living near the uh, great example of Chicago, which has one of the world's great uh, shorelines. It does. It's absolutely fantastic. So um, we're trying to catch up. Yeah, but you are. I mean, look, you've got great museums. We do. Cleveland Institute. Cleveland Museum of Art. Yeah. Cleveland Institute of Art. Museum of Contemporary Art, Cleveland. Transformer Station Spaces. We've got terrific contemporary art. Uh, and classic art venues. And then the buildings themselves. They're they're terrific. Yeah. The Cleveland Museum of Art was built in 1916. It's a beautiful neoclassical palace, and it's just had a, a, a huge expansion and renovation done by Raphael Vignoli, who designed jazz at Lincoln Center and other things around the world. It's a, it's a world-class venue. And, and the Cleveland Museum of Art, it's free. It is free. It's totally free. So, uh, and uh, the Museum of Contemporary Art just announced that it's going free. So I think they're putting pressure on other uh, venues here. I want to mention the... Uh, like the Museum of Natural History? Uh, Museum of Natural yeah, History, maybe them, yeah. Rock and Roll of Fame someday, who knows, maybe. But, well, uh, from an architecture point of view, let's talk about where we are right now. Yeah, this is a building by, uh, designed by I.M. Pei. Uh, who designed the... Uh, and the Louvre. It reminds me of, of the Triangle of the Louvre. Right, yeah. right. So the the lobby of this building is reminiscent of the Louvre Pyramid. Everybody knows that. It is. Glass uh, structure coming up between the wings of that gigantic palace. So we have this gem-like uh, structure here on the lakefront. What's the biggest surprise about the architecture of Cleveland for people who have not been here before? How much has been preserved um, there's uh, great stuff from the golden age of uh, American architecture, 1890 to 1930. Um, you know, and you find treasures like Severance Hall, the home of the Cleveland Orchestra, which is that's uh, Art Deco. It's a mix of Art Deco, uh, neo Egyptian, and neoclassical. So wow. it's got uh, you know the exterior is neoclassical, the lobby is uh, neo Egyptian with Deco influences, and then the interior is uh, Deco with uh, lots of modern curves to it. And we're talking with Stephen Litt, the art and architecture critic of the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Happily to report, you still have a newspaper in Cleveland. We do, and, and I'm having a great time. Love what I do. Let's talk about the neighborhoods, too, because most people who come to Cleveland don't get out into the neighborhoods. Right. So you're talking uh, 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 Tremont is, uh, is one. One, of, one of the uh, neighborhoods. Um, I didn't say Shaker Heights, <laughs> but I could. Detroit Shoreway. Yeah. Um, uh, Waterloo and uh, North Collinwood are terrific places where you're going to find galleries, uh, bars, restaurants. And a lot of the uh, revitalization here is driven by the arts at the local level. So there are small theaters and movie houses and uh, galleries and great, you know, great restaurants, terrific places to go and eat. For you, though, you just mentioned terrific places to go to eat. I'm going to come back to that in a second. Yeah. But You've got the museums. Yeah. You've got the exhibition centers, right? And yeah. you preserve those, including yeah. the Cleveland Orchestra. The Cleveland Orchestra is one of the great orchestra, one of the great classical ensembles in the world. So, I mean, it's uh, routinely compared with uh, the Vienna, Berlin, London. Uh, we've got it right here. 
uh, you know, the, the thing to mention about Cleveland is that we have, we have a cultural infrastructure. We have cultural um, attractions here that are uh, world-class despite our relatively small population. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. My next guest, he's a cookbook author, he's the dining editor of the Cleveland Scene Magazine, and he's the author of Moon's Cleveland Travel Guide. I've had him on the show before, happy to welcome him back. Doug Trotner, how are you, man? Good to see you again, thanks for yeah, having me. good to see you again. So, let's talk about the dining scene here in Cleveland, because... Uh, my guess is it's exploded. Yeah, it certainly has. You know, when we're talking about inductees and, and halls of fame, uh, I guess in the food world, uh, the James Beard Awards could be uh, an equivalent, and we've got a couple folks here um, who are the recipients of that big award. Like? Of course, uh, Michael Simon yep. uh, brought that uh, that hardware home to Cleveland uh, uh, a few years ago, and then uh, one of his protégés, uh, John Sawyer, did too. And, and it really kind of put us ahead. I would say we had a 20-year head start uh, ahead of a lot of mid-sized cities, second-tier cities, certainly the San Francisco's, Chicago's, New York's have always been doing a good job. Well, you had a 20-year head start because you were so far behind. <laughs> no, I think it's a... I think I, what, well, listen, when I started coming to Cleveland, it was ma- meat and potatoes. It certainly, and it still is meat and potatoes, but the, the meat has gotten smaller and the potatoes have been nudged off the plate by uh, local <laughs> vegetables, and you know we're, we're, we're getting you know into are the... Are you uh, trying to say kale? We are getting better in all those regards. Are you saying but kale? Course, uh, there's, there's kale, you know, okay. maybe even collard greens and uh, some... some you know, more, more. With enough kale, I'll go right back to meat and potatoes. Yeah. So what happened was, and people ask me this question all the time, why Cleveland? You know, why do we have such good food scene? And they've been asking me it for, I've been doing this for 18 years. Uh, they didn't ask me that 18 years ago, but they started asking me that about <laughs> uh, 15 years ago and, and 12 years ago. And that's because folks like Mike Simon and Rocco, who you'll talk to, and all these people who did go away, uh, you know, and, and learned. They came, they came back. They came back because they wanted to come back. Cleveland's a great place to be, a great place to raise a family. And, you know, let's be honest, it's an awful place to, you know, New York is an awful place to try to you know, start a business, or Chicago, or San Francisco. So, like many cities, they came home to, to make a business. Now, we mentioned this the last time you were on the show. It's worth mentioning again. You started as a criminal defense attorney. That's correct. I was a public defender for seven years down in Franklin County. Defending any chefs? <laughs> I don't know. No, no flying pans and skillets and, and things like that. Uh, it, worse, unfortunately, but uh, uh, as you can see by the smile on my face, I made the right choice. Well, speaking of that, what did you learn from your le- from your days as a criminal defense attorney that you apply now to the dining scene? You know, I get. Uh, you know, I always I used to joke. You know, and say I try harder. You know, I was always. What you know, dishes get paroled? I'm the all. We, you know, I didn't write for. I mean, I did write for the Plain Dealer and Big. You know, and still do write for large ones. But when I started, you know, I was the you know the the second guy, the third guy, and so every day I approached my job with a zest and a zeal uh, that I knew that if I did not do that, I would end up back in Columbus, back or or in some other courtroom, and I knew that was not where I wanted to be. So you happy to be in Cleveland? I'm happy to be in Cleveland. I'm happy to do what I do, and I, you know, fortunately, I also do some travel writing and other things that gets me out and about. Um, but uh, but you've also done cookbooks. Cookbooks is a, is a great thing that I kind of you know I would say fell into. So Michael Simon approached me uh, about eight nine years ago with uh, his first cookbook uh, and asked if I wanted to help him. Just help him, you know. Uh, he's a chef. He's not a he's not a, a fine writer. So you know, can you can you give me a hand? And I did, and that relationship turned into uh, five books and two New York Times bestselling titles for both of and us. You just did a barbecue book. Yeah, we just came out with playing with fire. This is a barbecue. Great uh, title, by the way, for a barbecue. Yeah, and book. it's and it's a great book. So if you you know if you're a barbecue fan, uh, you have to go to Mabel's Barbecue on East Fourth Street. That's Michael Simon's barbecue restaurant, and he does not phone anything in. You know we we hear a lot about celebrity chefs doing this and that. And you wonder, you know, is he ever there? Does he ever do anything? This is this is real deal stuff. Well, the the key to successful barbecue, of course, is how long you marinate it. No, I disagree. No, you and disagree. So, and so would he. Rub maybe, but it really comes down to the smoke. You know, low and slow, 12, 14 hours in a in a warm. Okay, let me human. try this one out for size. Go ahead. Okay, I don't throw anything on the barbecue before I put it in the oven and bake it for twenty minutes, <laughs> so that it doesn't overcook on the barbecue on the outside. See, now you're now you're talking about uh, you know a that's my slow and cold. A form so of barbecue that we had ha- had to fight against for many years in this town. If people like to say fall off the bone tender, that's uh, you know the rib you have to be able to slip that bone out like a loose tooth. That's not good barbecue. That's wrong. It's it's, it's still meat. <laughs> We're talking about meat here. It's got to have chew. It's got to have some texture to it. So, uh, and you can only do that not by baking it in an oven or braising it or 
God forbid, boiling it because you, what you're doing Excuse is actually me, making I am stock. not boiling it. <laughs> I am just baking it at low heat for 20 minutes and then putting it on the, to finish it on the barbecue. 20 minutes is okay. I'll give you that. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> hey, it's my show. <laughs> But no, but seriously, you do agree, though, that people make a mistake when they barbecue by just, you know, doing the rub and throwing it on. And next thing you know, it gets it gets burned on the outside. I agree. And if you you know, if we're being technical, there's a difference between grilling and barbecue. Barbecue is always indirect heat. It's real wood. It's live fire. So you're going to have an offset portion where the heat is generated. It's going to flow over and under the food. And only out and only exhaust. wood. And only wood. Only wood. I mean, if you're a purist, absolutely. Maybe charcoal. And who am I talking to here? A purist. I'm a purist. Okay, just double-checking, making sure we're clear on that. What would you say is the strongest influence in the food scene here in terms of, 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 of ethnicity? Eastern European, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I come from the east side. I grew up eating, you know, matzo ball soup and potato pancakes at Jewish delis, and, you know, that, that translates okay, to Okay, well, i got to ask the question. Best deli in Cleveland is? Well, there's a couple. You've got Corky and Lenny's, and you've got Jack's Deli. Those are the old-timers. Those are the ones that do it best and do it right. We've got a couple. Talk are about those trans- the ones that do the best pastrami on rye with, with Swiss cheese and Russian dressing? Well, I wouldn't put cheese on pastrami. That's what we call not kosher, but— uh... Oh, excuse me, Mr. <laughs> Purist. Here we go again. <laughs> But uh, to each his own. Yeah, it's, it's all delicious. Mr. Brisket is a small butcher shop that's been doing it close to 40, uh, 40 <laughs> years. Uh, he is making some killer uh, meats. But we have a couple young chefs t- talking about trends who are doing what we like to call new Jewish delis. Kind of, uh, you know, they're, they're shorter menus. They're, uh, you know, maybe more fast casually, quicker type operations. And they're doing a great job. One's larder in Ohio City and one is uh, lox, stock, and brisket. Out in the, on the east side. Great name. Yeah. Okay, here's my deli, my last deli question before you make me feel so inadequate again. Here we go. You ready? Always. What I'm missing at most delis today is new pickles. I'm with you. Pickles, pickles, oh, pickles. You agree. I'm not a sour guy. I'm a, like a, you know, I, I like a, a dill, a crispy, crunchy. Corky and Lenny's, you would go there just to plow through the, you know, the, the bucket of pickles that sits on the table. And, and Jack's too. I mean, it's all about the pickles, right? Well, it's all about the pickles and then... Changing subjects for a second. It's all about the mustard. Yeah, all right. We're a mustard town here, and if you put ketchup on a on a hot dog, they'll uh, they'll see you hundred yards away and uh, and lock you out of the deli door. You can do that at the uh, the ballpark, but uh, hopefully most people know at the ballpark it's all ballpark mustard. Bergman's right. ballpark mustard. But you see, okay, I I don't eat meat anymore. But when I did, I was addicted to one thing: pigs in blankets with honey mustard. Okay. <laughs> That's all I get from you? All I get from you is okay? Is that a, is that a, a hot dog wrapped in uh, bread and baked off? Yeah. On a cocktail weenie? Yeah. Uh, a cocktail uh, sticker? Go to any wedding. You go to any wedding or bar mitzvah, and when the caterers come out, with everything else, nobody goes. Yeah. When they come out with the pigs and blankets, it's locusts. Right, right. That and, the, and the Swedish meatballs. Yeah. Okay, we're on, that, we're on that track. What's the biggest surprise development in the food scene here? I, you know, I'm surprised. I travel a lot. You travel a lot. And I think the, the biggest food trend these days is food halls, wonderful places where you can go and eat at 10, 12 different places. New York, you know, they're sprouting up on every corner. I agree. I was surprised that it's taken so long to get here in Cleveland because we have a lot of great We well, have the food trucks, don't you? Certainly we have food trucks. They started about 2012 when the legislation changed to allow them, and they're, and they're everywhere, and they're doing a great job. Uh, fortunately... Uh, although it, it took a sweet time getting here, we do have the, some now. There's one great one in Ohio City called the Ohio City Galley. The Galley Group does similar things in Pittsburgh, Detroit, um, and, and other cities. And finally, we have one in Ohio City. They're doing a great job. It's a, it's a historic building. It's a beautiful old building um, now populated by uh, multiple chefs doing chef-driven concepts, quick, casual. You can go up to each stand, place your order. There's a large bar. Go sit down. Uh, we also have one on the east side called Van Aken District. They have a market hall. Similar concept. Oh, they also have retail. And there's also retail, there, yeah. sure. So it's, uh, it combines uh, both food and drink and then also shopping. All local, though. We're talking about local, local, local. These people all work here, live here, uh, and uh, often run restaurants here. And the mustard's okay. And the mustard is fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Doug Dratter, our good friend, the cookbook author, dining editor, Cleveland Scene Magazine, and author of Moon's Cleveland Travel Guide. And his new book is called Playing with Fire. Mm-hmm. We appreciate it, Doug. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. The charge for looking at this pamphlet is $3. The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is $4. Over the sea. 
My next guest, born and raised here, then took off, hung out with Wolfgang Puck for a couple of years, and then decided to return home to Cleveland and and opened up a major deal restaurant called Fahrenheit. Yes, sir. Rocco Whalen, welcome to the show. My pleasure. Welcome to Cleveland, the rock and roll capital of the world. It is. It is. You know, I'm one of those people who, and I've said this earlier in the show, Cleveland is one of the more underestimated cities in America. Every time I, I used to actually do a show here uh, as a guest called the, the Morning Exchange with Fred and Connie, WEWS, and I used to come in the, the day before. I'd always go out, in those days I'd go out to the flats, right, mm-hmm. uh, to a place called Shooters. Still there? Still there. Yes, sir. There was also this crazy Italian restaurant right by the old Stouffer Hotel, which is, and, and then there's a Ritz-Carlton over there now, this Italian place with the red banquette chairs. It was like a mob place almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, and when I was here at one point, that's when the river caught fire, but that's another story. Um, but you came back and you stayed. Yeah, yeah. Born and raised. Went out, uh, sorted my oats, West Coast, Wolfgang Puck, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, Phoenix. Cleveland always brought me back to this side of the country, though. Great people, great rock and roll, great food. But, you know, when I first came here, I wouldn't say there was great food. Things have really changed. It's evolved over time. A, a chef friend, Michael Simons, opened garage-sized doors for all sorts of chefs, uh, a partner of mine in other venues, but also just an opportunity to, you know, the best dining scene, I think, between New York and Chicago. Okay, but when I first came here, let's let's talk about it, meat and potatoes. It was a, it was prominent. Prime rib, still, baby. Still has a place in a lot of Clevelanders' hearts. Oh, no, I got that, but, you know. It's evolved, you know. It's changed uh, as the uh, the tides have changed, too. You know, the, the city, the, the museums, the art, the culture. Uh, Cleveland has always been a great place, and now the food, it's taken 20 25, 35 years to do that. It's it's come a long way, and, and you, you know we have James Beard award-winning chefs. We have nominees. We have uh, a great people that love a beautiful and strong culinary community, and we reached uh, the outreach is here at the Rock Hall. I mean, when you came back here, you opened this place up at the ripe old age of what? 24? 23, yeah. Excuse exactly. me. Yes, sir. 43 now. I'm, I'm, I'm working on 20 years at Fahrenheit. Okay. So what did you try to do then? I mean, that you, you knew that you had to change something. I mean, I tried to survive initially. I, I made a, a ton of people eat crow. Who's this 23-year-old that thinks he can run a restaurant in this trendy neighborhood called Tremont, which is on the western edge of downtown? Again, though, I, I took my lumps early. I learned a lot, tried to please people. And Cleveland's a roll-your-sleeves-up kind of community where the hometown hometown story is a, a relevant story, but also the food had so so many areas it could grow in at the time that a lot of us Clevelanders came back to, to support the neighborhoods, to support the community, and, and give back. All right, so you came back after all this experience on the West Coast, right? Yes. What did you put on the menu that you got your you-know-what kicked in when you tried to put in a crispy whole fish you know like a thai snapper with stuffed with ginger with a ponzu citrus sauce which sounds great you're an la guy you know that's on every uh, every fourth menu but at the time you know late 90s early 2000 it was it was unforeseen in cleveland but we've got this beautiful water source over our shoulder that's got great perch and great walleye and different things of that uh, you know in that realm and i just started to think outside the box and ethnic food you know cleveland's ethnic in in polish and german and czechoslovakia you got pierogies on the you got pierogies on the menu from time to time but it was an (laughs) seasonal pierogi Sure, but it was also an influx of Vietnamese, uh, Thai, Laos, Asian, Cambodian that, you know, Cleveland's got a, a melting pot of people from all walks of life. And the neighborhood I'm situated in is not just one house per block, it's four or five houses Explain per block. Tremont, because most people don't know it. Best neighborhood in Cleveland, I think, on the near west side of town, uh, 26 churches, uh, movies that were filmed there. The Christmas Story House in 1983 with Peter Billingsley, The Deer Hunter with Robert De Niro and Meryl Streep in 1978. Uh, the St. Theodosius, the church at the end of my block, was the church they got married in, and Lemko Hall was where Christopher Walken got crazy at the uh, reception and started <laughs> fights with everybody. There's a rich, deep history. Uh, above and beyond that, it's it's a great neighborhood full of gem restaurants, chef-driven restaurants, and it was the low-rent district when I opened 20 years ago, and it still has um, those attributes to it, but it's a neighborhood. How was sourcing 20 years ago? Well, sourcing was tough, but uh, as you grow as a city and you, you want different things and you have a demand of chefs that are wanting these ingredients, they have to they have to start acknowledging that and bringing them in because I just didn't want truffles. Michael Simon wanted truffles. Karen Small wanted truffles. Fabio Salerno wanted truffles. So that gave us an opportunity to, you know, put our heads together, kind of develop a small consortium. They're going to Chicago. They're going to New York. Why can't they come to Cleveland? Well, freight at the time, you know, packaging before Amazon, before the drones. You know, if if they're passing from Chicago through New York with Allen Brothers Meat from Chicago, a stockyard, why can't they stop in Cleveland on their way to New York City? And over time, you know, we won that grudge match and we started winning those arm wrestling matches. And, you know, Cleveland's here to stay. It always has been. But the people are beautiful. The city's beautiful. This this facility's beautiful. And hey, baseball team's beautiful. Baseball, football, basketball, LeBron James, local boy. Hey, left. wait. When I was coming back here, let's yes, face it, the Browns sucked. Yes, sir. 
Come on, admit it. Well, they have for a long time been uh, unfortunate, let's say. I don't want to yeah. say that S word that you said, but I'm a believer. So I think that we're on the come up. Were you, I think were you in the dog they, pound? Oh, I'm a season ticket holder since uh, my, my family generations. I've been a personal season ticket holder since 1999. Oh, my God. So I'll you've weathered the, the storms. Pound. You have weathered the storms. I've got a few restaurants over there, too, so it's a, it's a, it's a yin and yang. But the, the pride of Cleveland and the people and what they love and get behind are truly a remarkable thing, and you don't see it in all pockets of the country. And you're still a Browns fan. Big time. <laughs> well, we can rap about it if you want. And this year they're going to do what? I think they're going to win 10 games or more with the acquisition of Odell yesterday. That's right, from the Giants. They've got a lot of weapons, and uh, again, we're right next door to their address. And I'm going to tell you this, 78,000 fans that have been in purgatory for so long with teams that they love, but can't understand why we can never get over that threshold. It's, uh, it's well, maybe, a special time. Maybe this is the year. Chef Rocco Whalen, the chef and owner of Fahrenheit, and so much more here in Cleveland. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus starting May 1st. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.